are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Today's scripture lesson is found in John chapter 19, verses 17 through 37. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to see you guys here in person and online as well. My name is Justin, one of the pastors here. And if we haven't had the chance to meet, we'd love to be able to uh, meet you after the service. So please come up and, and say hello. Before we dive into our text today in John chapter 19, I want to take a minute and pray as we do before we preach God's word every week. But in particular today, I just want to pray uh, not just about the sermon, but things that are going on in our country right now. Obviously, if you are uh, a part of our church, if you're on our email list, you got an, an email from me this week 
uh, just acknowledging the fact that this year in particular, but really for decades and decades, our Asian and Asian American neighbors have experienced different difficulties and challenges as it relates to discrimination and prejudice and racism towards them. And over the last year in particular, it seems to be at, at a heightened level, in particular violence and both word and deed towards our neighbors. And so I've reached out to a few people within our church and within RGC as well. And regardless of all the details of everything that happened down in Atlanta this week, what's clear is that many of our neighbors, even within our own church and in the congregation of Redeeming Grace, are hurting and are dealing with emotions and feelings and fears and all those different things. And so I just want us as a church to pray about that, not only now, but throughout this coming week and weeks, and just to continue to lean in, to listen and learn. We want to be a church that's brought together because of the gospel. And as Ephesians 2 tells us, that because of what Christ has accomplished for us, which we're going to look at in our text today, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And that we are united in Christ together. And so we want to lead out in that way, but it has to start here with one another, that we value all of us, no matter what we look like or where we're from. And we want to take that to the world around us as well, because we have a a better way to seek reconciliation, and that's through Christ and Him crucified. So I just want to encourage you with that. If you don't know or haven't asked or reached out to someone, if you haven't spent much time thinking about it, just to take some time to do that over the coming days. But let's go to the Lord now in prayer and pray for our sermon as well. Father God, we just come before you this afternoon, and we're grateful that we can come before you. God, that you've made a way for us to be able to have access to you, our Father, who is good and faithful and true. And God, we can bring anything before you, all of our thoughts and our feelings and emotions. And so right now, God, we want to pray for our country. And we want to pray for our neighbors who have been experiencing in a a very acute way over this last year or so, violence and, and rhetoric towards them that seeks to demean and malign and marginalize and insult and at times even hurt or kill. God, we pray for our Asian American neighbors. We pray that they would know as we represent Christ to the world around them that all people, no matter what they look like or where they're from, are made in the image of God and are inherently valuable. There's no inferiority or superiority, no hierarchy of value, God, but before you, made by you, all of us are valuable in your sight. God, help us as a church to weep with those who weep, to work towards peace and justice, not just for the sake of peace and justice, but because the, the gospel of the kingdom of God calls us to be ambassadors for a message of reconciliation. That we can not only be reconciled to you, God, but reconciled to one another. So God, I pray that you would help us as a church and help the church be able to share that message and to listen and learn. Help our church to be a place that's a, a safe place, a safe community to be exactly who you've called us to be to bring all of our culture and all of our background together to be the beautiful picture that the family of God is and can be and ultimately will be when Christ comes again and people from every tribe, every language, and every nation will be before the throne. And God, we pray that you'd help us as a church to be faithful to that. We pray that you'd help our neighbors to be encouraged, that you'd take away fear. God, I pray that you'd crush those that are seeking to do harm. God, would you bring those people to repentance and faith God, I pray that our country would grow in loving and caring for one another. And God, I pray now as we open up your word that you'd help us to be attentive to your spirit today. Merciful God, would you calm and quiet our soul even before you right now? 
Would you help us to receive what you want to tell us today? Would you help us to set our gaze on you? Make us attentive to what your word says and what your spirit wants to communicate to us. And I pray that the truth of this text would hit our hearts and heads in a way maybe it had never has before. God, would you call us closer to yourself? Would you give us a fresh vision of Christ today by the power of your Holy Spirit that would affect our lives as we walk out of these doors? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a moment in life where you've kind of looked back and, and on something and realized that something that happened in your past that you didn't kind of feel the full weight, the significance of whatever it was at the time. It took months, maybe years, maybe weeks later until you realized that. It could have been something big or small, something positive or negative. Maybe it was with a person, like a parent or a coach or a mentor, and months or years later, you realize that an interaction that you had with them or a period of time that you spent with them had a significant effect on you. Maybe it was from a difficult or stressful season, and it wasn't until years later that you realized the toll that it had taken on you. Or maybe, it may be something small or, or kind of silly. I helped out with, I uh, helped coach my son, Owen's baseball team, and so I was playing catcher for some of the pitchers for about 45 minutes, which was no big deal until the next day when my quads were on fire for like the next few days. I didn't realize it at the moment, but that affected me. They were sore all week. See, with all those things in the moment, it may be difficult to see how that would affect you later on. As we come to our text today, I wonder if that might be the case when it comes to the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus for his disciples then and for us now. See, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, you know the significance of the cross. I mean, you wouldn't be a Christian if you didn't know the significance of the cross, but I wonder if sometimes the significance has been lost on us, that it's not continuing to have an impact on our lives. It's a piece of information that impacted you at one point but it doesn't have that daily life-shaping reality of an impact now. And if you don't call yourself a Christian, first off, know that we're grateful that you're here today. Maybe you're checking out the church, you're checking out who Jesus is. I wonder if the same might be true for you. Either you've never really heard about Jesus or understood who he is and what the purpose of the cross is, or maybe you've heard about it, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you or hasn't had much effect on you. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, I'm thankful that in God's providence, we're at this point in the Gospel of John. That in God's providence, we're at this point in our Seeing Jesus sermon series where we're trying to make sure that we understand and see Jesus rightly so that we might follow him fully. I'm thankful we're at this point in this text because this is the climactic point of the whole story. And the impact that it can have and does have on your life now and forever is earth shattering. It changes everything. And so my hope for you today is that you'll understand, maybe for the first time, the reality and the weight of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and that it will shape not only who you are now, but how you live in the days to come. So with that, let's jump into John chapter 19, and may we see Jesus more clearly today. Last week, Tom preached the text right prior to this, and we saw that sham of a trial for Jesus was coming to an end as he stood before Pilate, the governor of Judea. 
And Pilate declared over and over again that he found no guilt in Jesus. Yet the crowd of religious leaders and onlookers cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And so verse 16, Pilate, caving to political pressure, delivers Jesus over to be crucified. But the amazing thing is that in this, we're reminded that Jesus is king. In this, we're reminded that Jesus is in control. We're reminded that this is a part of God's sovereign plan, a plan put into place before the foundation of the world to save us from our sin. I've taken our text and broken it down into three sections, which will kind of serve as our three points with one final point added on. The crucified king, the victorious king, the king like us and for us. And then we'll ask that question, what are we to do with all of this? So let's look at the first section, our first point, the crucified king. We see this in verses 17 through 27. See, John gets straight to the point. Pilate has handed Jesus over to this cohort of soldiers and they take him out. And John tells us that Jesus is bearing his own cross. Crucifixion was a common form of punishment in the Roman Empire. And it was common for the person being crucified who was going to be nailed to this cross, condemned to death to carry part of their cross with them. It was kind of a, a precursor punishment before the main event. Now Jesus wasn't carrying the whole cross. He was carrying the cross beam that his hands would soon be attached to. John tells us that Jesus makes his way amidst the crowd of onlookers and he goes to this place outside of the city called the place of the skull or in Aramaic, Golgotha. And then John states bluntly and plainly, verse 18, there they crucified him. Crucifixion was meant to inflict shame on the person being crucified. It was meant to inflict horror and pain on the person being crucified. It was so heinous, so difficult, so terrible, a Roman citizen wasn't even permitted to be crucified unless they got sanctioned by the emperor himself. It was unlawful for Jewish people to be crucified. See, to be crucified on a cross is horrific in every way imaginable. A person is stripped down to nothing, their hands outstretched on a wooden beam, and oftentimes, if it wasn't tied around, was nailed through the, the wrist. If it was nailed through their hand, it would rip their hand in half. Their feet nailed to the bottom of the cross. The reason someone died when they were crucified on a cross wasn't because of the piercing of their hands and their feet. It was because their whole weight of their body was hanging there on that cross, eventually to the point where they couldn't breathe anymore. People died on the cross because they were asphyxiated, their body weak and weary, out in the elements before onlookers who were spitting at them and hurling insults at them and laughing at them and mocking them as they hung there naked before everyone, left to die. But John, he doesn't elaborate on that. He tells us Jesus was crucified because for John and the other disciples, as we'll see, this was but a means to a glorious end. That was John's focus, and it should be ours as well. In verse 19, we see that Pilate put an inscription on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. A sign like this was often put up over the head of the person being crucified to state the crime that they had committed, but also as a deterrent for those who would watch or see 
to say, hey, if you don't want to end up like this guy, then don't do that thing. But Pilate put that sign up, not just to state what Jesus was being crucified for, but to mock and ridicule the Jews. He, he, didn't, he thought this whole thing was kind of funny and entertaining, and so he's seeking to mock Jesus and the Jews at this point as he puts this sign over his head, and it has its intended effect. Look at verses 20 through 22. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. You know, the biggest, most important question any of us could ask or answer in our lives is who do you say Jesus is? This Jew, the Jewish religious leaders, they don't want anything to think Jesus is someone different than who they say that he is, a blasphemer and a false teacher. But Pilate, he's unpersuaded. He lets it ride. He leaves it as it is. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The crazy thing is Pilate mocks the Jews because he doesn't really understand what he's actually saying here through this sign. His mocking sign is actually true. Jesus is the king, but not just of the Jews. Have you guys ever gotten a, a, a new appliance or an electronic device and you have that book of directions, the manual, right? Why often is it way thicker than it needs to be? Because it's written in multiple languages, sometimes 10, 15 different languages to explain the directions about this particular device. What's the purpose of that? Because the manufacturer wants as many people as possible to have access to understand what's going on, how to use this thing that they have in their hands. See, the majority of the known world spoke one of these three languages that the sign was written in, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So what's, what Pilate's sign is effectively stating isn't just that Jesus is the king of the Jews, it's Jesus is the king of the nations. And he's being killed for exactly who he is. See, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. The religious leaders just didn't like who he was and what that meant for them. I wonder if sometimes you and I reject Jesus, not because we don't know who he is, but because we do know who he is. And we don't like what that means for our lives. See, if Jesus is king, then we're not autonomous self-sovereigns, but under authority. If Jesus is king, then it isn't me, but he that leads and guides and directs. If Jesus is king, then he sits on the throne of my life, not me. Yet here he is, crucified, his arms and feet nailed to a cross. And this is so upside down, so unexpected from what the Jewish people were looking at when they were looking for a Messiah, this promised rescuer who would come Death on a cross? That's crazy. See, from the world's perspective, this looks like failure. But from God's perspective, it's exactly as he intended. That's why John gives us some of the details he does in verses 23 through 27. First, he tells us this crucified king's clothes are divided amongst the soldiers who crucified him, but not his tunic because it was in one piece. Why does he give such specific details about this? 
because they fulfill scripture. Scripture spoken hundreds of years before this moment, specifically in this case, Psalm 22, verse 18. But as John references Psalm 22, he knows that his original readers would have been familiar with Psalm 22, a Psalm that David wrote that's a foreshadowing of the crucifixion, a foreshadowing of the resurrection. In this, he's telling us that this is exactly what God intended, what he planned. Then John tells us there's a few other people there that are watching, but not many. It seems that many, if not most of Jesus's followers have left him but there are some faithful women who remain, including his mother, Mary. And Jesus turns to her and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, who's writing this gospel account and says to his mother and to John, look at verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, he said to her, woman, behold your son. And he said to this disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. See, in all of this, John is showing us that God's plans and purposes are being fulfilled. And in this, he shows us the character of our crucified king. These soldiers, they're just looking out for themselves. But Jesus, in the midst of his agony and abandonment, is looking out for others, for his mother, for his friend. This is the crucified king. And his crucifixion leads to his victory. But not only his ours as well, which leads to our next section, the victorious king, verses 28 through 30. Jesus has been nailed to this cross and he's, he, he crossed and he's weary and he's weak. He's already been beaten. He's already been deprived of sleep and food and drink. And so he's suffering on this cross physically. And he knows in that moment that all is finished. And so he asks for a drink. Now, this is different than the drugged wine that Jesus was offered in some of the other gospel accounts that he refuses. This is cheap wine to be drunk. See, Jesus' throat is parched and he wishes to say something to the crowd. He wishes to say something to the world. He wishes to say something to us. And what does he say? It is finished. It is finished. Now, John doesn't tell us the tone in which Jesus says this, but the other gospel accounts say Jesus let out a loud cry before he died. So this right here is not the moan of the defeated. It's not a sigh of being resigned to his outcome. It's a triumphant declaration of victory. It is finished. Why is he saying this? We have to remember our reality. God created the world and it was good. But the first human beings made in God's image, made to worship him, made to walk in joyful obedience to his loving and gracious kingship, rejected God. They rebelled against him. They went their own way. It's what the Bible calls sin. And it's caused a cosmic fracture, a catastrophic collapse of creation and humanity the relationship between God and humanity that was meant to be harmonious was now a relationship of enmity and strife. It was broken for Adam and Eve, for every human being born after that. See, the reality is all of us desire to be our own king. All of us reject God's good authority and care over our lives. We think we know better. We think we can do better. We wanna be self-autonomous, self-sovereigns. And now, because of that, 
Where there should have been human flourishing, there's now difficulty and death. Where there should have been relational striving, there's now conflict and loneliness. Where there should have been whole and a whole and holy peace, there is now discord and brokenness. But in the midst of the horrific moment of cosmic insurrection, a promise is made. God said to us in Genesis that it wouldn't always be this way, but the person would come, one who would crush the head of the serpent and overcome the effects of sin, something that none of us can do on our own. See, all of the Old Testament tells the story of God's loving pursuit of his people. All the Old Testament points to this coming redeemer who would restore and reconcile a sinful humanity to our holy God. And at this moment right here with Jesus hanging from the cross in excruciating pain is the pinnacle of it all. When Jesus says it is finished, he's declaring that that plan that was put in place before the foundation of the world to rescue sinners like you and me, it's been accomplished. But this is exactly where I think we need to slow down and make sure that we understand the gravity, the impact of this moment, not just then, but on the rest of our lives. Because it's here that depending on where you are on your spiritual journey, you might not understand the significance of what's taking place, or you might understand what's happening, but it's lost its significance for you at different points and in different ways. See, I think what we miss, or at least tempted to overlook or downplay at times, is the seriousness of our sin. And we can look at the world and see the wickedness that goes on in the world or even in the lives of others. But what about in us? This sin sickness that we are born with is pervasive. It infects and affects every aspect of who we are. Our thinking, our worship, your relationships, your pursuits. And it's serious because it's treason against God. It puts you at odds with him. Scripture tells us the consequence of that is death. See, apart from Christ, you stand condemned. Apart from Christ, you are guilty before a holy God for your rebellion, for worshiping anyone or anything besides God, for stealing God's glory for yourself instead of reflecting it to the world. You are damned and doomed on your own. And that's why this moment And these words from Jesus are earth-shatteringly significant. It's why they're a declaration of victory, not defeat for our victorious king. See, this moment seems like failure from the world's perspective. Jesus is abandoned, he's alone, he's suffering, he's dying among common criminals, but it's the exact opposite. Jesus is in complete control. He willingly went to the cross to stand in that, for that specific purpose and reason, to fulfill a specific mission, the redemption of people from every tribe, every language, and every nation. In this moment when Jesus dies and says it is finished, he's living out what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That when Jesus said it is finished, he took on your sin on the cross and gave you his perfect life, gave you his righteousness. You switched places with you. He became a substitute to die in the place that you should die. See, Jesus' death was not just physically painful, In this moment, all the righteous wrath of God for sinners like you and me is poured out on Christ. 
He stood in your place. He died for sin, not his own, but yours and mine. That means that Jesus' death wasn't accidental. Jesus' death wasn't tragic. Jesus' death was certainly not a sign of failure. No, his death was purposeful and effective and specific and all-encompassing and complete. When Jesus declares it is finished, he's declaring over you and to you that his death is sufficient for your sin and mine. All of it. He knows it all. Church, we have to get this. We need to think on this. Jesus didn't meet you halfway. He didn't look at the bill of your debt and say, hey, why don't we split this? No, Jesus paid for it all. He covered all of it. He took all of it on himself. This is mind-blowing to me. It's one of the most freeing realities of my entire life. Jesus knows me. He knows everything about me. He knows everything I have struggled with, do struggle with, and will struggle with. He knows every sin I've committed, every wayward thought I've had. Yet, yet, he went to the cross for me. He went to the cross for me to rescue me from all of it. I can't out-sin the grace of God achieved in and through the cross of Christ. And neither can you. Jesus didn't die for you on the cross. And now look at your life and go, oh, if I had only known that, I wouldn't have done that. He knows you in every aspect of your life and he paid for it all. Church, when Jesus declares it is finished, it isn't like he's saying he finished a meal or like when we finish a project or a homework assignment. I mean, if I get done with the sermon and say it is finished, that's significant for me it's not significant for the whole world. When Jesus says it is finished, it changes everything. Now there's a way. There's a way through his once for all sacrifice for sinners that once were destined for an eternity, separated from God to be rescued and restored and reconciled to a right relationship with God. And guess what? We had nothing to do with it. You didn't bring anything to the table. He didn't look and say, that guy's gonna be a good one. I'm gonna die for him. She looks like a winner. I'm gonna die for her. We brought nothing. It's not about your good works or your good behavior. It's all about what Christ has done for you. That means that this piece of information here isn't just a piece of information. When Jesus says it is finished, it's not a useful gift. Like if you get a new set of tools or a Dyson vacuum for Christmas. No, this is an eternity altering gift of grace given to you freely. He willingly laid down his life for you, not because you deserved it, but because you need it, because you need it. And does this amaze you? Does it blow you away? Does it move you? Does it lead you to worship? To cry out to God, thank you, praise you, God, that you rescued me, a wicked sinner in need of grace, that you willingly went to the cross for me. Does it leave you in awe? If it doesn't, I hope that you'll take time to think on it this week, to reflect on it this week, and we'll see how John guides us and directs us to that now. See, we have a crucified king who is a victorious king because he's a king like us and for us, which is our final section or the second to final section. We see this in verses 31 and 34. 
So this interesting thing takes place here where it's almost a day of preparation for Passover. And so the Jews can't deal with a, a dead body at that point in time. Say, hey, let's speed this up. Can you go break the legs of these criminals? Because if they broke their legs, they couldn't lift themselves up to take a breath. They'd have nothing to support them. And so they would die quickly from suffocating. They go to break Jesus's legs, but he's already dead. A Roman soldier decides to make sure and jabs a spear into Jesus' side and out comes blood and water. There's speculation on what the purpose of the water and the blood is, but the primary point is this, that Jesus is really human and that Jesus is really dead. See, John gives the details that he does here to show us this isn't defeat, this isn't failure. This is God's sovereign providence to bring about the redemption of humanity, the one who is like us died for us. So what are we to do with this? What are we to do with this? John tells us in verses 35 through 37, he says in verse 35, I I saw it all, I witnessed everything and I'm sharing it with you so that you might believe. So that you might believe. But see, the reality of this text of the finished work of Christ on the cross isn't something to be believed on once and then move on from. So if it doesn't have an effect on your life, no, it changes everything for you. Galatians chapter two, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, because Christ is crucified, because it is finished, it's changed my life. I have to live differently now. And what amazing news of amazing grace, because it is finished, you can be made new and walk in the newness of life. What are we to do with this today, tomorrow, and beyond? John tells us in verse 37, they will look on him whom they have pierced. He's calling you to believe. Look on him who was pierced for all of your sin, who declared over you it is finished and believe. Have you done this? In a society that likes options and shortcut solutions, there aren't any when it comes to dealing with your sin. And you're standing before God. There's only one option, one path, one remedy, one way to life and freedom and forgiveness, and it's Jesus. Have you placed your faith in him and his finished work on the cross? If not, let me implore you, let me plead with you to do that now, to cry out for God to save you even now. Today is the day of salvation, today and now is the time. For those of you that have already placed your faith and trust in Jesus, my exhortation to you is the same, believe. Look on him who is pierced for all of your sin, who declared over you it is finished and continue to believe. Listen, you have an accuser. You have an accuser who has dirt on you. He knows everything about you, all the mistakes that you have made and will make, and he hurls those at you to shame you and ridicule you and isolate you and tell you you don't deserve God's grace and tell you you're a failure and look at you, what you did again, look how you messed up again. He's gonna continue to accuse you and assault you and come after you, but you know what? Jesus, the lamb who was slain, took all of it on himself and he declared it is finished and he declared he paid for it all. But my fear for some of you, if not all of us at different points in time, is that we're more prone to listen to the voice of our accuser than the voice of our savior. 
If that's you, listen to what Jesus says about you and over you. It is finished. In those moments of doubt or condemnation, remember this text. Remember that it's finished. Remember the reality of Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12, where the psalmist writes, talking about God, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In Jesus, he's taken your sin away. He doesn't look on you and see you that way. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Remember that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brother, sister, will you continue to sin in this life? Yes. Will you continue to struggle, to fail, to falter along the way, to wrestle with unbelief? Yes. But as one pastor from long ago said, for every look at yourself, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Look on him who declared it is finished. The cross of Christ opened a fountain of unending grace and forgiveness towards you. Look on him who was pierced and believe. It's ironic that the cross, a tool of execution, actually was the means of Jesus' exaltation. In him and through him, the crucified king, the victorious king, the king who is like us and for us, it is finished. May this truth move you. May it lead you to worship. May it radically transform your life. May it ground you and guard you no matter what comes your way in the days ahead until Jesus comes again or calls you home. Amen. As a first response to the preaching of God's word, we take communion together as a church. We do this every week. It's a visual, physical reminder and a spiritual refreshment of what's going on in this text, the finished work of cross on the cry, Christ on the cross. We eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body given for us. We drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. So let me encourage you today, as you eat and drink, set your gaze on your crucified Savior. Think of the heinousness of your sin and repent and believe anew on the one who paid it all for you. And then we'll stand and sing to our redeeming and rescuing God and King. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to take communion because that isn't yet your declaration or your hope, but we want it to be. So instead of eating and drinking today, we want you to take Christ. As you sit in your seat, pray, ask God to save you and rescue you right now. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and put your hope in Jesus. If you have questions about what it means to know him and follow him, let me know. Let anybody in this room know. We'd love to walk with you in that journey. For those of you that will take communion, if you didn't grab the elements, they're on the table right outside the lobby. You go grab that, spend time in prayer, spend time in worship, eat and drink whenever you're ready to. And then we'll stand and sing together. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, you have lavished your grace and mercy on us, not because we deserved it, but because we need it. We were dead in our sin, going our own way, but God, you being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. God, we thank you. We thank you, God. We praise you, God. We thank you for the finished work of the cross of Christ. I pray, God, that you'd help us now to look on him who declared it is finished and believe either for the first time or the thousandth time. Help us to set our gaze on the one who paid for 
all our sin. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.